be seated. How's everybody doing today? Awesome, awesome, awesome. It is uh, it's a wonderful privilege to be before you. Um, I thank God for what he is doing in your lives. And uh, it is my expectation as we uh, continue as a ministry, as a church, as a local assembly, that uh, what God has started in you, uh, there will be a fruition of that. that. We will see the fruits of what God has begun in you. Um, I always count it a privilege to be before you. I thank God um, for our, our shepherds. Um, you know, in the scriptures, they would be considered our under-shepherds, but they are our shepherds. Um, both Pastor Bank and uh, Pastor Sharon Akimola, who uh, were able to grace us with their presence this evening um, after a, such a long trip <laughs> to Thailand. <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back. Um, this is a uh, continuation of the message that we um, had discussed on Sunday, which is a continuation of a series that we've been on in which we've been talking about the I am sayings of Jesus. Um, and the last subject that we covered is that Jesus is the good shepherd. And one of the things that we've uncovered is that whenever Jesus is saying I am, he's not necessarily making a statement like a, like a job title. In a sense, he's not saying something like, you know, hey, I am a, a physician, I'm a farmer or anything like that. When he says I am, there is a context to it. And that context is enshrined in, the, in what the Jewish people would call the Torah. In Exodus chapter 3, uh, Moses, um, who out of no expectation had an encounter with God, and, and God was in the form of a burning bush. He appeared to Moses, and uh, he gives Moses a mission in which he tells Moses to go back to Egypt, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Well, of course, Moses, like most of us, would say, okay, you're sending me on this mission, but uh, first and foremost, I want to know how, I want to know, are you going to be with me Two. The people that I'm telling that, you know, we're leaving Egypt, how would they even believe that you called me to this mission? Not only that, you got a pharaoh who is extremely powerful, and he got an army that backs him, secret service and everything, CIA, the Navy, all this, all this military might that backs him, and, they can, and the pharaoh can decimate me just my, or just my presence being in the land. Well, what, so basically Moses asked him, you know, who should I say sent me? And God spoke to Moses and said, tell them that I am, that I am sent you. And he connects himself with the history of, uh, of Israel by saying that I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, I have proof. I am the proof that your survival to this very day has been based upon me, not upon you. That I am that I am is, 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 is a statement of constancy, of consistency, of self-sufficiency. He doesn't need anything else. He can do it all by himself. He is God and God alone. 
He is supreme above, way beyond all the idols, way beyond any man, way beyond any military might. He is I am that I am. He is constant in the present. He is constant in the past. He is constant in the future. And that whatever you have need of him, he's able to supply that because he is self-sufficient and he is efficient at getting the job done. So he gives Moses this promise, this assurance that, that he is capable of not only sending Moses to Egypt, but bringing Israel out of Egypt. Amen? So Jesus is declaring to these people, to the Jewish leaders specifically, but to all of Israel, that I am Yahweh, Yahweh the good shepherd. And I liken the concept of Jesus' presence in Israel as kind of like uh, watching that show, uh, Undercover Boss, in which, you know, he is the CEO of the universe. He owns everything, the stars, the sun, the moon, the galaxies, the solar system, everything you can think of that exists, exists because of him. And yet he takes out time to step out of eternity and step into the realm of time to visit what I would consider his business enterprise, which is the people of Israel. And he's coming to check on Israel in a very personable way. He's not looking at Israel from a distance. He's not looking at Israel sitting on the throne in heaven. No, he's coming to visit them. He's coming to spend time with them. He's coming to get to know them, to talk with them. The CEO of the, of the universe is, is having a dialogue with common people. He's not in the palace, you know. I mean, you would think that if God would leave his throne to come to earth, that he would then come and take over a throne on earth. But that concept doesn't move him. He's coming to spend time with people like you and me, you know. If he was to come to America today, he wouldn't go to the White House to sit in the White House. He would, he would be out on the streets talking to regular folks, folks who don't have an army to back them, folks who are in need of nourishment, need of, of, of the things in life, need of comfort during times of uh, depression, need of healing in times of sickness, Need of, of good things in moments of despair. And yet, he, he looks at Israel and he notices he's overwhelmed with compassion. Almighty God in human flesh, he's overwhelmed with compassion. And he, he notes the conditions of Israel. And he says that they are basically a sheep without a shepherd. I mean, they had leadership. They had a king. But the leadership was insufficient. The king that was over Israel, insufficient. And in a sense, they were taken from the people rather than providing and leading the people like shepherds should be doing. And he's overwhelmed in seeing all this. And it's not, he's not overwhelmed from a, from a position of not knowing that this was going on. But he's, the, this overwhelmingness is, an, is, is a result of his human nature. 
In other words, he can now feel the grief of the people, not just making an evaluation from the throne in heaven. You know, it's one thing when you think about the children in Haiti when they experienced their earthquake, you see it on the news and you're like, oh, that sucks. You know, that's terrible. I feel bad for them. It's another thing to actually be in Haiti and have that experience and see people overcome with grief. And that's what's going on. He's not watching, he's not watching Israel from the vantage point of a distance. He's there live and in person, and, and, he's, and he's now in human flesh, so that grief, he's stricken, in a sense, you know? He's overcome, and he has this compassion. And that should tell you something about the God that we serve. You know, Muslims pray to Allah day in, day out, five times a day at least. Yet the Allah that they believe in, that revelation of Allah through Muhammad is insufficient. Because Muhammad can't come back and, tell, and, and, and experience that grief that Muslims are feeling, uh, are experiencing every day. That means that Allah that they serve is deficient. He can't do anything. He can't redeem people with the message of Islam. It's impossible. But yet the God that we serve comes in human flesh and spends time with us. And he issues, and him calling himself a good shepherd is, is connecting himself not only with Yahweh, the God of Israel, but he's also connecting himself with Israel's redemptive history. And he And in a sense, when he calls himself the good shepherd, he's connecting himself with the message of God's promise in Ezekiel chapter 34, in which when they hear Jesus calling himself the good shepherd, saying that I am the good shepherd, for anybody in Israel who has read the who has read the uh, the 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 the, the law and the prophets, they know that that's immediate condemnation for the leadership. Because, and he, he, he gives you step by step, like line after line, highlighting the problem with the leadership. One, they were incapable of leading the people. Not only were they incapable of leading the people, they failed to feed the sheep by providing proper spiritual oversight. In other words, their interpretation of the law that was supposed to be a benefit to Israel ended up being a detriment to Israel. Instead of it being something that they can go by and enjoy the presence and the reality of knowing of having this special revelation with God, this law was condemnation towards them. And not only was it already tough to keep, they would now, the Pharisees would now heap on more laws, making it even much more difficult for the people to live. So they failed to feed the sheep by providing proper spiritual oversight. Uh, two, they overlooked the needs of the sick. They refused to ensure the safety of the people, number three. And four, they refused to seek the lost sheep and provide restoration. So you see throughout the mission of Jesus, he's going out and he's, and he's getting in touch with sheep that have been basically been scattered, who in a sense been counted out. We know the story of Zacchaeus 
who was a tax collector, worked for the IRS. Not only was he a tax collector, he was the worst kind of tax collector. So it was hated. It was not only a, a, a bad position to be in because in those days, a tax collector, their main job was basically co uh, collecting money on behalf of the Roman government. So not only are you taking money from us, you're taking money from us and giving it to somebody who we really, really hate. And Zacchaeus was not, he was the chief of the tax collectors. He wasn't just, you know, the one that, call, that, that you talk to on the phone when you're calling the IRS. No, he's the one that's running the IRS. So he's doubly hated. And yet, this lost sheep, when Jesus visits him, he gives um, Zacchaeus hope that he can be a part of the covenant of Abraham. And Jesus restores him. It makes you think about some of the most hated people in history. That if only they can have an encounter with Jesus, Jesus would restore them. If only if Hitler can have a true encounter with Jesus and be restored. If only if Osama bin Laden can have a true encounter with Jesus and be restored. These people were not beyond redemption. We are not beyond redemption. We have, we have, the, um, we have the lady who was, uh, had the issue of blood. Who by Jewish law had no business uh, being around people. She has an encounter with Jesus and she's restored. We had people who had leprosy, who didn't have any ability, didn't have any rights to go to the temple, which was kind of like um, one of the, it's like going to one of the most, the most important place, the most significant place in your culture. You cannot go there because of your, because you got leprosy. And Jesus heals them. He restores them. So he's going around restoring people, restoring people, restoring people, healing people. Whatever the ailments were, he was bringing them back into covenant with Israel. And in the midst of this, chapter 10 comes on the heels of this healing that took place in which Jesus heals the blind man. And instead of people jumping for joy, instead of these Jewish leaders being marveled at the sight of what God is doing, they use that as another reason to condemn Jesus. And they attacked anybody, and I believe this is found in Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, where they had this, degree that, this decree that if anybody um, believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that they could be kicked out of the synagogue. So Jesus heals this blind man, and they go to his, the blind man's parents and they say, hey, um, who healed your son? Well, out of fear of, the, of getting kicked out of the synagogue, they say, well, hey, our son is grown enough. You go ask him. <laughs> condemnation after condemnation for a good deed, for something that God is doing. And Jesus does this on, a most, on the most important day in the Jewish week. He does this on the Sabbath which was a time that was actually designed for the people of God to encounter God. He restores a man on, on the day in which is designed for restoration. Yet these Jewish leaders 
did not find restoration in that. They wanted to condemn Jesus. And then they wanted to condemn anyone who would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We talked about the law being um, that if it was perfectly kept, that Israel would have been an example to other nations. It would have been a light to other nations. That's why Jesus came and said that I am the light to the world. Because he's the only one that could perfectly keep the law. But if Israel had perfectly kept the law, all the nations in the world would have been looking at Israel as an example of how they should live. And that God would be glorified in throughout all the earth because now they have a visible, tangible um, uh, uh, example to look at. And Israel fails this. They fail badly. And so Jesus comes to make up for, what, for where Israel failed by being the shepherd. And he's basically doing the redemptive work. And in doing this, he's also criticizing the Jewish leaders. We say that he is willing to die for his sheep. One of the things that makes him a good shepherd is that he's willing to die for his sheep. And we know that the, the, good, the word good in the actual Greek language in that particular verse is not just a moral position. He's not the good shepherd because he's morally, he morally got it together. He's the good shepherd because in reality he is competent and they were incompetent. Oh, <laughs> should have said something. <laughs> I'm like, why is she going in my wallet? I'm just. <laughs> um, so he's willing to die for his sheep. And that's in contrast to people who were hired to watch over the sheep. And we said that if you wanted to do a comparison between the good shepherd and the hired hand, it's more like the person that owns the business versus the person that is just an employee at the business. You know, you work at a job, you're only there as long as they're paying you. When the going gets tough and, and money is running low at the business, you don't tell the owner of the, uh, of the business, hey, you know, um, I know money is tight. Don't worry about my check. Um, when we come out of this, you can pay me later. No, you tell the, you tell the owner of the business, Yo, it's time for me to go. You know, you know, I had that experience. But the owner of the company, they don't, they don't, they stick it out through the good and the bad. Because the owner of the company has, in a sense, the foresight. He knows that, hey, times is tough right now, but it won't be tough always. You know, so they stick it out. The company is failing, they stick it out. So likewise, God's love for you is not based on what you have done for him or what you can do for him. It's based on his ownership of you. Are you his? Will you allow God to own you? We said in B that he is driven by the Father's love and authority. He has a divine obligation to fulfill this call as the good shepherd. In other words, him not being able to live up to this obligation would have been a mark not only on him in person, but also God who sent them. And he has the authority, the ability, the power to actually accomplish the deed. 
We said that his name is on the line. And, you know, in those days, if um, a shepherd, a shepherd was as good as reputation, you know, if, and I was just listening to, um, to this, uh, to this pa- pastor, I believe by the name of John MacArthur, and he said something that was very interesting. He said that if a, if a sheep was killed, you know, under a shepherd's watch, the shepherd had to produce evidence that the sheep was killed. It couldn't be that the sheep was lost. You have to produce evidence that the sheep was killed. If you didn't produce this evidence, then your job was on the line. So your reputation was everything. And just like us in our personal day-to-day um, engagements or whatever, you, you want to make sure that your name is intact. If somebody says something bad about you, you will fight like crazy to make sure that your name is, uh, is, is recovered. You want to keep the good name for yourself, right? You own a business. You want to make sure that that business has good standing by making sure that nobody has anything bad to say about your business. Why? Because your reputation is everything. And likewise, God's, God's name is his reputation. David knew this when he said that Yahweh is my shepherd. And for the sake of his name, he feeds me, he restores me, he leads me on the path of righteousness. He, get, he grants me rest. That great, that, those green pastures. So we're going to kind of pick up the story. And we're going to go back to uh, John chapter 10. And I'm really not going to be long. It was just some things that I thought were interesting. Um, let me see if I can get in here. But John chapter 10, and as soon as this thing opens up, let me begin. And this scene is taking place during the Feast of Dedication. It's John chapter 10, and we're looking at verse 22. It says, at that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place in Jerusalem, Verse 23, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Verse 24 says, the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And so... Here we are during the time of the Feast of Dedication. Now, granted, given in our context, um, we're not really that familiar with the Feast of Dedication. But we know it by another name, Hanukkah. Right? So back then, they celebrated Hanukkah. I remember growing up, when people talked about Hanukkah, Hanukkah was more like that, uh, the Jewish Christmas. <laughs> You know, my teachers would tell them, well, you know, the Jews, they, they, sell, they have their own little Christmas. They call it Chanukah. But it's, 
but it's Hanukkah. That's what the Feast of Dedication was about. And the Feast of Dedication was a very, was a very sensitive time because it was centered on the Jewish people being over, able to overcome their oppression under the Greek, under the Greek emperor. And it was sensitive because at the same time, uh, let me see if I can just get back in my notes and make this flow a little bit more smoothly. The rededication of the temple was a time of the year in which the Jews were very sensitive about the temple and the worship to Yahweh. It was also a time that highlighted the extreme divide between the Hebrew Aramaic speaking Jews and the Greek speaking Jews because of the Greek-speaking Jews' affinity for assimilation to Greek culture or fusing aspects of Greek culture with Judaism. So basically what happened is that if you've, and I don't know um, if you've ever had a chance to read the book of the Maccabees. It's one of the books that we would consider in the Catholic Bible. But it, it tells this story about this time in which um, there was where this guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, believe number four, he comes to power, he rises to power, and he does these, he, he tries to assert his power among the people in, in Jerusalem. And the Greek-speaking Jews at that time had an affinity. They felt that, you know what, um, rather than us rebel against this emperor, let's be friends with him, you know? Let's kind of assimilate. Let's invite some of Jewish for uh, some of Greek culture to be a part of what we're doing. Well, we have these uh, we have these Jewish people who were also considered the traditionalists. They were the Hebrew speaking Jews. They didn't want anything to do with the Greek culture. They felt that this was an abomination. And Epiphanes went so far as to sacrifice pigs in the temple, which was an extreme no-no in the eyes of Jewish people. It was abomination, and it basically, it basically incited the revolution in which the Jewish people wanted to oust this, um, with, uh, oust this emperor and his control over the land, and it was extremely bloody. But their ability to overcome is what basically inspired the Feast of Dedication. Because now the temple is being rededicated back to God. But at the same time, the temple being rededicated back to God, we now got a problem with these Greek-speaking Jews who wanted to side with Epiphanes. So as a result, you have the social hierarchy, right? You have the Hebrew, Aramaic-speaking Jews who were considered themselves the top of the top. The second under that hierarchy, you had the uh, Greek-speaking Jews. Under, that, under the Greek-speaking Jews, you had the Samaritans, and then you had the Gentiles. And you see this play out in Acts chapter 6, where um, the, the, the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, were complaining against the, uh, against the Jewish leadership or the Jewish believers in Christ, right? And the reason why they were complaining was because they felt... Why is it as widows we're not getting the same treatment as the, as the, as the Hebrew-speaking Jews? And this is where you see the story of Stephen and all that come out. So Yeshua stated, so the, the less Jewish you were, 
the less Jewish you are, the lower you were in the social order. This is also what we see play out in, okay, I went over that, Acts chapter 6. So Yeshua stated earlier in verse 15 that I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice. So the Messiah is actively breaking down. He's actively breaking down like these barriers of divide that, make, that by making it clear that his sheep hear his voice. He's the good shepherd, and he is faithful to his sheep and has relationship with his sheep. So who are the sheep? His sheep are the people of Israel, but specifically the ones who hear his voice. As the good shepherd, he is a reminder that Yahweh has not abandoned his eternal covenant with Israel. Israel is his people, but, it is, but this is important to know. The qualifications for being his people is not based on ethnic identity. When God calls Israel out of Egypt, not, not all of everyone that was left that left were, were uh, Israelites by blood, but they were included in Israel. Exodus chapter 12 verse 38 says that a mixed multitude also went up with them along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. So God, through Moses, announces that Israel, as God's sheep, must leave Egypt and included in this departure were some Egyptians who followed Israel by faith. In other words, you were of Israel, God's sheep, if you responded to this call, whether or not you were actually a descendant of Jacob. Very important. So the fleshing out of God's desire to see missions happen did not begin with Christianity. It was God's desire all along in which he invited Abraham to partner with him. Through the natural seed of Abraham, we have the ethnic people of Israel who leave Egypt, not of their own ability, but by the grace of God, along with Egyptians who believed by faith that this was a move of deliverance. The journey that accompanied this call was one in which one was one in which the one that left Egypt had to believe, and the proof of that belief is one's desire to continue the journey through the wilderness and eventually into the promised land. I got a question. The blood-born Israelite who refused to leave Egypt at the time that God called Israel out of Egypt, did they have a right to the inheritance? Not at all, right? The Egyptian who left, who left Egypt with the Israelites at the time that God called Israel out of Egypt, that they have rights to the promises of God as well as entrance into the promised land. Absolutely, right? Because it wasn't based on blood. It was based on faith. Here's also what is interesting. Moses, who represented the law, did not bring the people into the promised land. So likewise, those who did not believe the promise of God did not make it into the promised land either. Why? They did not believe the shepherd. On the other hand, the servant of Moses, whose name was Hoshea, whose name was also changed to Yehoshua or Yeshua for short, physically brought those who believed into the promised land. Joshua or Yeshua was a type of the true shepherd to come both in name and in mission. Joshua represented the fulfillment of the promise. Both the Israelites by blood and non-Israelites 
by blood, entered into the promised land, but categorically and collectively, it was Israel that entered into the promised land. And so Yeshua is reminding the Israelites on the Feast of Dedication, this time of sensitivity where you will really see a huge divide between the Hebrew Aramaic Jews and the Greek-speaking Jews and even the Samaritans and also the Gentiles. He's reminding, the, he's reminding all of Israel all the people that are hearing that this mission, that the sheep that he is calling is not by blood. It's not because you say that you're a descendant of Abraham. It's not by, because you say that you're a descendant of, of, of Jacob, Israel. But it's because you hear my voice and you obey. That is the mark of being a sheep of God. And so the call that is going out today that constantly goes out, is the gospel. The gospel is calling each and every person, whether you are of Israel or of a Gentile nation, that you can have part in the sheepfold of God if you believe. And so our prayer today, as I begin to round up, our prayer is that we begin to, uh, my prayer is that we begin to believe God for a uh, uh, for an inheritance of people that will come into Waltham, people that will go into the various churches and want Jesus Christ to be their shepherd. Amen. So let's rise to our feet and let's pray a prayer for a, a desire for evangelism to spark in our hearts. That as we begin to interact with people on a daily basis that they will hear the voice of God, that they will hear the voice of the shepherd calling them and inviting them to come into his fold, inviting them to come into the mission of his work, inviting them to come into, uh, inviting them to come into his family. Let us pray that as a people of God, that we will be driven to go out there and truly minister the word of God, both in deed and in action, and also verbally speak the words of God so that when they hear, when the sheep that have yet to come into the fold hear, that they will, be, they, they will, they will know that it is God speaking, and they will submit to their shepherd. Father God, we just thank you so very much right now. We give you all the glory. We give you all the honor. We thank you right now, Father God, because it's your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, that he is our shepherd. And so, Father God, we just pray in the name of Jesus, Father God, that you will give us a heart to go out there and really reach the lost at all costs, that you will give us a heart to go out there and disciple others, Father God, that as they begin to have an encounter with us, Father God, that you will speak through us, that when you speak through us, that you will open and blind eyes, Father God, that those who are sick and in need of healing, that as you speak through us, as you move through us, Father God, that we will touch people and they will be healed. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we are asking that you will empower us with boldness, Father God, to declare your works, to declare your goodness throughout the land. Father God, we pray in the name of Jesus that you will give us the words to say, Father God, that we will not think that it has to be something that we know, Father God, that we will not think that it has to be 
be something that we have to make up, Father God, but that when we open our mouths, that it is you that is speaking through us, Father God, that, you will, that we will speak words of healing because of you, that we will speak words of deliverance because of you, Father God, that we will encounter those who are truly in need of salvation, Father God, that it will be evident, Father God, that it will be evident that you are moving through us, that they will see what's going on, that they will take notice of the people of God, and that they will leave wherever they are, Father God, and come to know you. Father God, give us the heart. Give us our compassion, Father God, to see people who are without a shepherd, Father God. Give us the compassion to see people who are in need of a shepherd, Father God, and act and act upon that compassion. Father God, we pray that you will continuously speak through us, that you will continuously speak to us, Father God, that we will know you. We will know you like we have never known you before, that we will have an encounter with you like we've never had an encounter with you before, that we will, that we will see you work, Father God, and where we see you are working, Father God, that we will partner with you there. Father God, that wherever we are, it's a mission field. On our jobs, Father God, our, employ our fellow employees, our fellow co-workers, Father God, our colleagues in the schools, Father God, our fellow students, Father God, who are in need of knowing who you are, who are in need of hearing the gospel. Father God, empower us to speak to them. Help us to know, help us to help them know who you are. Teach us what to say. Teach us how to operate, Father God. We cannot do it without you, Father God. Bring back the days of the apostles when we walk past places and just by the very shadow of us, Father God, people are being healed. Teach us to speak life, Father God, in dead places. Teach us to speak healing in places where there's sickness, Father God. Teach us to empower people who are in desperate need of being empowered so that there is a harvest that will glorify you. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 That is all that I have. God, God bless.